Welcome to the 3WEDU In Vino Fabulum podcast. I'm Laura. And I'm Patrice. And we're your co-hosts for the In Vino Fabulum, that means in wine story. We think there are a number of tales to be shared about women and wine, and this is a space where we hope to offer a few of those and chat about wine, women, and amazing things. Welcome to the latest and greatest episode of In Vino Fabulum. Today, we're excited to chat with Tony Rosori about chatbots, AI, wine, education, and other fun things. <clears throat> Tony is a technical communicator, trainer, and consultant, and she's worked with many companies uh, related to software development across five continents. And she has some rather non-traditional uses for traditional tech comm tools and is currently working with a team developing innovative tools and methodologies to answer the need for information applied to existing and new technologies such as VR, AI, and chatbots. So welcome, Tony. We're excited to talk with you today. To begin with, uh, could you? is there anything you'd like to elaborate on or share with us about your bio and some of the work that you're currently doing? Like, are you secretly Carmen Sandiego and we have to find you right now? <laughs> <laughs> I'm secretly living in Italy, although I'm an American, originally from southern Louisiana. So if you pick up on the southern accent, that's where it comes from. Uh, and when I moved to Europe, I first lived in southern France, and now I live in southern Italy. So I learned to speak French with a southern accent, and now I assume I'm learning to speak Italian with a southern accent as well. <laughs> That's amazing. Were you only allowed to be in the south since you're from Louisiana? Well, I don't like cold weather. Mm -hmm. I lived for most of my adult life in Pennsylvania and in Virginia, and so I had my of snow. <laughs> mm. oh. And of course, we, yeah, I say we met in Amsterdam about a month or so ago, where I was assured that it never, ever snows. And it was actually quite chilly while we were there. But we did find many opportunities to enjoy a delicious glass of red wine. So getting to the good stuff, uh, you had mentioned that one of your favorite red wines is Cote Tyrone. And could you tell us a little bit about how that got to be your favorite? Because I think it's an interesting story. Yeah, actually, you know, I don't, I'm not a wine connoisseur. Um, and before I moved to Europe, the truth is I knew very little about wine in general. Uh, I just knew what I liked and what I didn't. And I was living uh, in Virginia for about uh, 12 years before I moved there. And Virginia has a growing uh, wine industry. But I became very, um, of course, moving to southern France, I had to either become a wine drinker or be antisocial, right? <laughs> so, uh, but I very, I had a very good friend who was a vigneron in uh, the Cote Tyrone region, and um, the wine that they produced at a very small winery there that had been in their family has been in their family for several generations was a five-time award winner for the um, Paris Concourse, the Orange uh, Concourse for red wines. So um, while it became one of my favorites that was, you know, confirmed by the fact that they won several awards for that. But I spent a lot of a lot of time with these friends and even at the vineyard. So I was I was there when they brought in the grapes. I was there. I even helped bottle wine sometimes. And um, 
but I, I learned how they make it. And of course, you know, spending a lot of time with them, I, I learned more about wines and just uh, became a little more in, informed. I still don't consider myself a connoisseur because I've met several people who are true connoisseurs, but I know what I like and, and what I don't like. And so I really prefer uh, the Cote d'Aron. I would say that that's my favorite. And uh, I like this one in particular that they produce because it's a very, it's very smooth. Um, it's not a very, uh, very strong wine, so you can drink it daily. Um, and yet it's a, it's a very, um, it's a nice round wine. I do also like uh, Bordeaux and Bourgogne because I really do like really strong, round, full-bodied wines. And I particularly love a Fout de Chêne, which is the one that they uh, age in the oak barrels. Mm. So, um, so yeah, that's one of my favorite. There's, a, there's another one that I really like that was produced in the south of France. And for the life of me, I can't remember the name of it, but... If I didn't have my Cotteron, then I usually would go and pick this up, this one up because it was local. Uh, but it was a really good, a really good red. Can I ask a question for our listeners and maybe myself? Can you explain what a Vigneron is? It's a V-I-G-N-E-R-O-N. Oh yeah, well we would just call them a, a winemaker. Okay. Uh, in English, Perfect. we would call them a winemaker. Um, in France, they're called a vigneron. That would be a professional winemaker. Um, typically, typically what you find in, in France are people who own a mass, it's called a mass. Uh, we would call that a, maybe something like a farm because they don't just call uh, vineyards masses. Uh, I lived on a mass as well and it's kind of like a small farm. And uh, a lot of them have, it's been, in, you know, it's been in, the farms have been in their families for several generations. And um so the vigneron is the professional word for the winemaker. Cool. So this podcast is about learning. We're not connoisseurs. We're here to learn about wine. So th thanks for sharing that. And, you know, I, I you mentioned as you were telling the story about your favorite wine, something that Laura and I have talked about. It's not really just about the drinking of the wine. It's about the human interaction and the friendship and the socializing that takes place around the drinking of the wine. Yeah, and you know, in, in France, of course, that's that's part of the culture, and it's not something that I ever experienced in the U.S., uh, particularly, I grew up in the Deep South, and I grew up in the Bible Belt, and so drinking wine was frowned upon, really. Um, so, but in France, you know, wine is, it's, it's a part, it's not just a part of the culture, it's part of the family, it's part of socialization. Um, you have typically wine with, with every meal. And I'm not saying that everyone does. Uh, more and more, I found that there are people who just don't drink alcohol at all, even in, even in France. But typically, even those who, who don't drink a lot of alcohol, they still have a glass of wine. And, it, and it's, it's really very social. Um, typically, in France, they would have a lighter wine for an aperitif, which would be the before dinner. So usually a white, sometimes a champagne actually, and actually champagne is a wine that's produced in the region of called champagne, like Cote de Rhone or a Bourgogne or Bordeaux. Uh, in the summertime, we really like to have a rosé wine because it's really hot in the summertime in the south of France and the rosé is 
nice and refreshing, right? Mm-hmm. So it, um, it definitely is, is part of the culture and part of, like you said, sharing time with family and friends. And um, I rarely met people who <laughs> were something, you know, a word that we would use as Americans is a wino, someone who drinks too much wine. Um, because it was, it was just part of, you know, it wasn't something people did, at least in my experience, just to, uh, over, overindulge or, or something like that it really was one, one of the things that I found was very interesting when I first moved there. And I'll tell you a funny story. Um, I used to tell people when I first moved to France that I felt like I was drunk the first three months that I lived there. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I didn't. I didn't really have the the capacity to drink very much wine because I wasn't accustomed to it. Um, but one of the things that I noticed is that in France, the other thing is not just wine, but meals. They last a really long time. Uh, the Italians are, are similar in that way, um, especially in southern Italy and in southern France. The the meals last a really long time. So you might drink more wine than you would, you know, normally be accustomed to, like if you were just at a, you know, a traditional meal time in the U.S. But because the meal lasts for so long, it's consumed very slowly and it's consumed with food. And obviously, anytime you have anything that's alcoholic and you have food, you know, then you're you handle it a little better. So I had I had to learn to pace myself a little <laughs> bit. And, and even after seven years, I still can't keep up with the French. <laughs> so the example for our listeners, if you're not aware of an Italian meal, because Patrice and I are both Italian, those are two to four hours sometimes. They're like long meals. Yes. Really? Yes. Are you guys both Italian? I didn't know that. Yeah. I am too. Yeah. My dad's so I'm, yeah. I, and my, uh, my ex-husband is Italian. So my, oh. most of the, my family is Polish. Okay. Oh, I didn't realize that. Well, it's one of the reasons that I'm in Southern Italy right now. I arrived in Southern Italy, not by accident, but because um, my grandmother's family is from the area where I'm living now. And um, the last of all of the Italians immigrated to the U.S., you know, back in the 20s, except for just a few. And the last of the um, local Italians have passed away, and so I'm here on behalf of the uh, American part of the family settling uh, the property <laughs> that's left. So the Italian comes from my from my mother's side. Hmm. Nice. Huh. And so you know, I had mentioned earlier we you know we met at the uh, Information Energy Conference and. At that conference, you know, a lot of the presentations, of course, were about AI and deep learning. And some of the, you know, the discussions we had were, you know, what do educators need to think about? And, you know, do we really need to be concerned about robots taking our jobs? And I think you may have touched on one job we don't have to worry about, and that's the tasting of wine. <laughs> well, you never know. So artificial intelligence or AI could take over if they create that bot. Are you working on that, Tony? Uh, I'm not working on any bots that are considering <laughs> taking over the wine industry. No. <laughs> oh, phew. Yeah. Um, but could and, you, you know, oh, believer, one of those believe people who believes that bots are going to take over the world. Um, even though I, I do work in this industry and I do know of people in this industry who are 
even who are working in the industry who are concerned about what might happen with AI. Um, you know, there's a lot there's a lot of hype out there about AI. And while there are some amazing things that are happening, probably, you know, all of us would be surprised if we knew some of the things that are happening. We're still so, so far away from true machine intelligence, first of all. Mm -hmm. And second of all, um, the for most, you know, for people who are working in AI, I mean, I don't know any any evil mad scientists out there, right? But for most of us who are working in, in AI, we're trying to develop things that are not to me meant to take over the world or take over people's jobs, but in fact, to um, help us to be more efficient and more effective at the jobs that we do. One of the things that I like to say about specifically about chatbots, because one of the things that we can see chatbots doing in the future is handling a lot of customer service. And I say that, you know, the point of a bot is not to replace a human, but to allow a human to do more meaningful work. Because the place that we are right now with bots and other types of quote unquote intelligent machines um, is that they tend to do the things that are kind of rote for us, uh, repetitive. Uh, they handle a lot of automation. Uh, when it comes to customer service bots, uh, imagine a bot who can who can manage the phone calls that you would normally take, you know, a hundred times a day of people asking the same question over and over and over again. So, I have a bot I that will answer my student emails yet? <laughs> no, uh, actually, it's it's probably it's possible. Yes, actually, okay. it's possible. Um, now. So, so bots are not uh, intelligent, and it's one of the things that you know, Patrice. You you were at the presentation that I did in Amsterdam, and um, the point that my colleague Ponce and I were trying to make is that there's a lot of hype around chatbots too. Chatbots are nowhere near intelligent. Basically, they just say what you tell them to say. So, if you have a question that your students are asking, and all of your students are asking the same question, uh, you could build a Facebook bot, right? That would answer some of those questions that all of your students are asking and say, you know what, before you come to me, go talk to my bot. And if you still have questions, then give me a call. It's kind of like an FAQ or canned response, essentially. Um, <clears throat> for the most part, for the most part, yes. There has been some when you say canned response, there are humans behind bots, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, we are actually, when we create a bot, we're developing what we call the human intent. Like, what is the question that the human is asking? Or what is what is the information that they need to know? What is their intention? And we actually have to teach the bot those intentions and how to match those intentions to an appropriate response. So we're not only giving the bots the questions, we're giving them the answers. <clears throat> now, there have been, excuse me for a minute, <clears throat> there have been some experiments with uh, true artificial intelligence uh, behind bots where the bots can, quote unquote, I'm using quotes again, learn on their own. But basically what the bots are doing is they're using algorithms that are based on human language to quote unquote learn. They're not really 
learning, they're understanding patterns. So I guess depending on your definition of learning, they are learning. Uh, they're learning patterns. So there have been there have been some experiments with AI. Um, one of them that was rather public recently, and let me see if I can remember the context because there have been a few disasters uh, recently. Um, the bot that went on Twitter and started saying that they were going to kill someone or they hate someone or something like that, I don't remember the details of it. That was an experiment with, um, I think it was a face, I think it was Facebook, but I, I'm not really sure, so let's not say that, okay? Because some of the some of the more advanced bots that we've seen out there that have been really in the public eye uh, have come from Facebook, Microsoft, of course, IBM with Watson and Apple with Siri, Amazon with Alexa. So I don't remember which one of them it was, but I think it was one of the biggies. Uh, and so they they took down that bot, right? Uh, so that to me is kind of proof that bots are not really they're not really ready to um, kind of take on a life of, of their own yet um, because bots don't have something that we humans have. And um, besides, you know, besides ethics, they don't have, they don't have intuition. Um, they use, they can use logic and they can use algorithms, but they're not human. And so they can't determine when a response is appropriate or when it's not appropriate. They have gathered that information from somewhere. They didn't come up with that information on their own. They've gathered it from somewhere. Either someone put it into the bot or in this case of this example that I'm speaking of, it was a bot who, if I remember correctly, had quote unquote learned based on online conversations, Twitter conversations or, or other conversations. And during your presentation, you talked a little bit about Siri and Alexa and some um, almost sexually harassing comments that they made based on, you know, how they were gathering information. Uh, yeah, that was that was because I was um, before that particular conference, I was demoing a bot just one on one to my colleague who was doing the presentation with me. And this was a voice bot, and uh, I'm not going to name the developer, um, but this particular bot, as we were just standing there having a, she and I having a casual conversation before the presentation, we were asking it questions about artificial intelligence because we wanted to see how this bot was going to respond to questions about artificial intelligence and the technology behind it. So this goes to intent. The bot, in, I forget the question that we asked, but the bot misunderstood our intent. And it thought that we were talking about something else. And it started talking about having sex with angels or something. It made <laughs> absolutely no sense whatsoever. Um, but it was just a it was just a, a demo bot. It, it wasn't a bot that's really out there on the market yet. Uh, I just happened to have access to it because I met the developer and um, was able to get a demo copy of the bot. He's promised me that all of the content is going to be reworked within that bot. <laughs> some, some logic models that need to be worked out there still? 
Yeah. Well, you know, I'm not sure when you say logic models, this is actually an interesting subject to me. Um, because now I, you know, I am not an expert on algorithms, deep learning. I wouldn't even say I'm an expert on artificial intelligence or chatbots. There are a whole lot of people out there who know a whole lot more than me. So I'm, I'm just kind of saying some things based on my understanding. I work with, I design chatbot conversations and dialogue flow. I don't actually develop the technology behind the bots. But I've tried to learn as much about of it about it as I could because I'm really interested in it and because it helps me to understand how to better design conversations and dialogue flow if I understand what the bots are actually capable of. But you were talking about logic and um, there's actually, Patrice, you remember Carlos Perez who was also mm -hmm. one of the speakers in Amsterdam. Uh, that was the first time I had met Carlos, but I had heard about him. But of course, after meeting him, um, I was and hearing his presentation, which I found really fascinating. Uh, I was interested and went and looked up some of his articles. And one article in particular that I found, he talks about logic versus intuition. Uh, and if you're interested in reading this article, it's really interesting. It's on Medium and it's called Alpha Zero, How Intuition Demolished Logic. And one of the things that he says in there is that one of the reasons that early artificial intelligence failed, because really artificial intelligence and research has been around for many, many, many years. We're just now uh, seeing kind of, of a resurgence of it because of some things that are happening with technology and some growth that's happening, some things that we're more capable of. <clears throat> but he says that the early machine learning was based on logic and the newer machine learning is based on intuition. And what we see in this, what he talks about in this article is alpha zero, which is um, uh, this, this game bot who does, who plays chess or something like that was able to beat logic because this uh, machine is based on intuition learning rather than logic learning. And that was really fascinating to me because not so, not so much because of the speaking about the technology behind bots or other types of machine artificial intelligence, but because he was really, he was talking about humans and um, how, how humans think. And he says that basically our thinking is really not based on logic. It's based on intuition, that logic is a layer over the top of our intuition. And so he said that the newer, the newer machines have been more successful because they've been based on intuition rather than logic. Because what, what they do when they're teaching them is they give them lots and lots and lots and lots of examples and the machines um, come to conclusions based on kind of an intuition of looking at these examples. And he was saying that that's how we as humans um, think that's how our intelligence works as well is that sometimes there's too much information for the human brain to really process so what we do is we just look for patterns and so as we see patterns we make a decision based on those patterns which is an intuitive decision 
Um, and it, and it kind of just kind of started me thinking about, um, even about myself personally, I've always considered myself a person who relies more on intuition than logic. And in our kind of traditional society, logic is, um, logic is, well, intuition is kind of frowned upon, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it's not as important as logic. Um, and so it kind of made me think, hey, well, maybe I'm not so stupid after all. Maybe I am a, <laughs> you know, kind of an intelligent person. So he has this, he has this quote in the article, if, if I can uh, read you this quote. It says, the intuitive mind is a sacred gift, and the rational mind is a faithful servant. We have created a society that honors the servant and has forgotten the gift. And that's a quote by Albert Einstein. Interesting. We'll, we'll link to that article, and I want to read that after we finish chatting because that sounds yeah. really fascinating. Can I back up and ask, and how how does one start scripting for chatbots? Um, well, it's um, I started to say it's a rather new industry. It's it, it's not it's not true that chatbots have probably been around since the nineteen fifties, but again, because of recent advances in technology, there's been a new. Uh, a new uh, interest in them. So I'm saying that to say that I'm relatively, you know, this is a really new field for me. It's a really new field for most everyone I know who's working in this really new field. Mm. So there's not, when you say, how do you go about scripting? We're, we're still in the process of developing kind of the methodology. Um, but I'll just tell you what I do. I yeah. started, I started scripting chatbots when I was doing research. This was before I was actually building any working chatbots. I was I was playing with the methodology for scripting, and I was looking. I was using a tool that they use in the gaming industry for creating dialogue flow and scenarios, and it's called Twinery. And it's a it's a cool online tool that you can use for free, and um, it just allows you to write your script and then kind of test it. Because when you're writing a dialogue, think about a game when you're playing a game, a video game. Um, imagine the person who's scripting the dialogue in that because a video game, you're very flexible in a video game. You create your own journey. You know, they lay out lots of options for you. They offer you lots of things that you can do, lots of places you can go. But depending on the decisions that you make, the dialogue is going to change. Well, they can't write a dialogue in a linear format like we think of, you know, writing an article in a linear format. So they have to create dialogue in, in what we're now calling molecular information, molecular topics, really small pieces of information that um, can be read by the machine, the software, whatever it is, and that then the machine, the software, the game, whatever it is, can put that information together depending on the path you choose. So that's what Twinery was allowing me to do, was allowing me to kind of create paths with information. Uh, now I'm working with real bots and I'm working in um, the quote unquote editors and they're pretty, um, they leave a lot to be desired. So I've been working with uh, some developers in France who would develop an interface that I, that I wanted, that I thought would be more helpful. So basically, there's an editor where you just basically write your dialogue. But within the editor, there's something that looks like a mind map. So that you can, okay. yeah, so that you can kind of connect 
branches of dialogue. And that way, as the user make cho makes choices, the bot will jump around within this dialogue. So it's kind of difficult to explain. No, things. no, I get it. So um, Twinery, I know Twine from the game developing, and I remember the Twinery is the script that goes with that. So that's interesting. How did you get started doing that? For, was that for your research, you said, initially? Um, I got started because a client that I was working with for embedded help, contextualized help within software, work primarily in software, um, this client wanted a chatbot to do a demo of their software because they didn't really have like a dedicated sales team. Mm -hmm. And so again, we're talking about automation, right? And so they wanted to automate their demo with a chatbot. So I got um, through this client, I got hooked up with um, some chatbot developers. And as I was working on this for the client, I just became really interested and fascinated. I started doing my own research and um, reached out to a couple of different uh, chatbot companies and developers and started working with their tools. Uh, I've worked a little bit, just a little bit, with the uh, IBM Watson conversation uh, as well, because that's probably one of the most famous, you know, conversation bots out there. Um, so it was just kind of by, like most things in, in my career, kind of happened by accident. Cool. No, thanks for sharing that. I just wanted to follow up. I was like, how did she get started in this? This is so fascinating. Cool. Well. I've always been interested in kind of progressive technology. I'm a writer at, at you know, my foundation is in journalism and broadcast journalism. Um, and I worked and taught in, in journalism before. But when I was actually um, teaching at the university, let's go back maybe, I don't know, 12, 15 years ago, I was playing around in virtual reality and looking for use cases for virtual reality. And this was at a time when we really didn't know what to do with, you know, we had this cool thing, but no one knew what to do with it. So uh, I actually taught a university course in a virtual world. So I've always been, you know, I'm kind of a nerd. I guess. I'm a nerd. <laughs> and uh, you're currently teaching a course, right? Uh, yeah, I, two courses. Um, I teach one course at the University of Strasbourg in France, and I teach, and these are both, you know, distance learning courses, um, and the other course that I teach is at the Cork Institute of Technology, and um, that's a technical communication course, um, and last semester when I was teaching that in in trying to um, introduce my students to the subject of creating molecular content that could be read by machines, we actually did some chatbot conversations and my students went really crazy over it. <laughs> A few of them created chatbots for their final projects. It was kind of fun. That's awesome. I'm wondering, you know, especially because you had that hands-on activity, uh, are there any specific challenges that women in this field or you've noticed in your class face, you know, giving them that opportunity to kind of create a personal project helps with engagement and persistence? Um, I don't think that there are any 
I don't think that there are any specific challenges for women as far as uh, the technology or, or anything like that. Um, I think that the challenges that we see in technology have more to, are more societal than anything else. They're certainly, mm -hmm. to me, not challenges that have anything to do with um, intelligence or ways of thinking or anything like that. Um, as you probably know, there are many more many more men in technology than there are women in technology. And there are a lot of organizations, I say a lot, there's several organizations out there right now that are trying to change that and trying to get women into technology. You know, to be honest with you, I don't, I don't know what the reason is for that, except that it's kind of a societal thing. I think that we've, we've you know, as a society, thought often of that being a, a job for men. But um, I, you know, personally know a lot of women in technology. And um, I don't see any particular challenges in the field itself. I really think, think it's just based on, you know, kind of a, societal norm it's my opinion do you think it's different in other countries because i've had this conversation with my partner and in ireland there are a lot more women in tech than there are probably where we are in the u.s just by ratio and i don't know if that's a, a regional thing or cultural and country thing as well yeah, I don't know. You know, I can only talk about my personal experience. And um, I haven't lived in the U.S. for almost eight years. And, of course, a, you know, it's not a long time, but technology has changed so much in the last eight to ten years that it is a long time. So I, I think that when I was living in the U.S. and I was working in technology, um, I probably did see a lot more men than women. Um, but here in Europe with the colleagues that I have, um, it's true. There's still a lot, of, you know, probably the majority are men, but, but I meet a lot of, a lot of women in tech. I was on a trip, a student trip, um, last month, uh, with the university of Strasbourg where I teach the one course and we took some, a uh, group of students to South Africa and, um, out of 20 students, only two of them were male, and the rest were female. And they were from um, Canada, Mexico, the U.S., the Ukraine, Romania, Germany, France, uh, and Italy. And I may have missed a country. Uh, and... You know, so that, so that's I'm basing you know using my an anecdotal experience, but I think that maybe it's possible that in Europe we're seeing um, more women in technology, and I think possibly because there it provides so many um, new opportunities for. You know, I personally I think you know, and this, again, this is just my opinion. I think that. In, in, in the whole, in general, that women in the U.S. have had a lot more advantages earlier on than women in a lot of other countries. But I think that possibly because of that, that 
women in other countries now, they are having opportunities that maybe American women have had for a really long time. And they're jumping in headfirst into some really interesting things. So that's kind of, you know, just as I'm kind of looking from my perspective, that's kind of my opinion of why I think probably we see a lot of European women in technology. Yeah, that's uh, it. It continues to be an interesting uh, and difficult to answer question of, you know, why some women persist, and you know what types of things might you know help build their efficacy and you know belief in their ability to be successful. And certainly, a lot of it seems to be around mentoring and helping, kind of them align their goals with their passions, so that they know you know like for example, I went into engineering because I was good in math and science. I had no idea what I wanted to do with engineering, and you know so when I was taking my classes and they were difficult. I mean, I, I persisted in them, but it certainly, it was, I think it would have been more manageable if I knew this is why I'm doing it because I want to do this other thing. Um, and that, you know, I was thinking about that today in the discussion that we were having um, related to the use of AI in education. And, you know, one of the questions that was posed is, you know, what are the best ways to communicate uh, information to students? For example, you know, there are interfaces of, you know, where a student can see how they're doing compared with everyone else in the class. Like, you know, or I'm on track for a C. Or, you know, students who have gotten the types of grades I've gotten over the last semester tend not to persist in this major. And so, you know, one of the concerns, of course, is that if students only, you know, see this data, yeah. it's actually going to drive people out of majors. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, based on, you know, some of your experience, what you've talked about, about where AI is and, you know, how far we have to go, what are, you know, some things that we as educators, like, what are some of the questions we should be asking to the industry and vendors who are coming to us with these tools? Hmm. Um, I'm not sure about, I'm, I'm not sure how to answer that question. Um, so, so I'll give you a, a response as a person who's, you know, been in education, um, that, that I've thought about. And that's that I feel like we need to more and more introduce students to newer technologies. Um, you know, I, wor I worked uh, in the university system in the U.S. I was on faculty at James Madison University uh, before I moved to Europe. And I was always trying to introduce the newer technologies into the classroom because what I found was, you know, we think of, we think of young people as like really, really adept at technology. Um, but in truth, in my experience, they're adept at using their smartphones mm -hmm. and that's not it. You know, they're, they're not really aware of, of a lot of the technology that's out there. So, so as someone who's, you know, been in the teaching profession, one of the things I always try to do is just introduce my students. I feel like, um, there's so much in, in university that is, traditional basic knowledge and and of course of course students need that 
Uh, let me speak spe specifically in my profession because it'll be easier for me to make the connection. Um, so I was graduated from and my master's and teaching in a really excellent uh, technical and scientific communication program in the U.S. And I really, you know, I really um, learned a lot that helped me move into this field. And one of the things that they did in that program was just kind of give us a taste of certain things, not necessarily dive deep because, you know, in a four-year program, there's only so much you can do, right? Um, but one of the things that as I look around at, you know, I co I'm coming from my master's in technical and scientific communication, and I'm teaching in two courses right now that have kind of a technical and scientific communication base. And when I looked at the curriculum that they handed me, my first thought was, wow, this curriculum is 10 years behind. Okay, yes, they need these basics that are in this curriculum, but the approach that I used um, in the course that I taught most recently at Cork, and it was the first semester to teach the course last semester, was I gave my students reading materials to cover a lot of those basics that are easily learned by reading. Mm -hmm. And we spent, our, we spent our lecture time and our class participation in interactivity time doing things and talking about things that, sure, we need those foundations to be able to do these things, but in talking about like new technologies new technologies and how could we take those foundational things and how could we use them in some of the newer technologies because what i'm afraid of and actually i see this happening already uh, i'm really active on linkedin and so i have recruiters contacting me a lot you know trying to get me to apply for jobs and there's this really 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 huge need out there right now or engineers and people with knowledge about uh, not just artificial intelligence, but about natural language processing and computational linguistics and things like that. Who's teaching that? You know, who's teaching that? And so I, you know, just just this past week, I get this recruiter who was he was actually kind of rude. He was kind of hounding me. And it's like it's urgent. This company in Germany needs someone who can do blah 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 blah. Well, you know what? I'm not even qualified to do. I turned it, you know, I said, I'm not even going to send my CV because I'm not even qualified to do what they're asking for. And, and, you know, I don't know one person who has a degree or who has even had a course in computational linguistics. Now, I know there are people who have, but I don't know any of them in my profession. It's funny that you say that because I'm thinking of a colleague because we're just starting to teach that class. And I'm in the College of Information where I work and we have linguistics in our field. And Alexa mm -hmm. is originally from Germany, is now teaching an undergrad and master's computational linguistics. Um, just because what you said is there's not many of them out there. And mm -hmm. depending on who and how you see that. So we've partnered with our computer science folks are sending their students our way. Our data analysis folks are sending their them to linguistics as well but she teaches it from a linguistics and data analytics background and I would say you're right we don't teach the skills of inquiry and application to some of the tools or the behind the scenes even 
of what those um, technologies and tools do. We just say they're there instead of having them pl play or explore or question some of these. Yeah. So first of all, I want to take that course. Tell okay. me about it. <laughs> no, I, I'll all. introduce you to Alexa. She loved, she likes to have people audit it. Yeah. Yeah. The second though, what you said, you said something very important there is you said we partnered with our, uh, with the computer science department. Um, you know, my background is in language and information and I, I took myself into technology. It was not a program that took me into technology. So one of the things I would say is that, uh, and I talk, I talk about this a lot in conferences and such, is that as information specialists, we can no longer just deal with words and language. We have to deal with technology. And a lot of the people who have the kind of job title that, you know, that I've been keeping around, even though I think it's kind of, in my opinion, it's not, not so relevant anymore, uh, technical uh, communication or technical writer, a lot of them just want to keep writing. They just want to keep writing. But the fact of the matter is you have to know how to deal with the technology because as much as as information specialists, we like to say, well, technology is nothing without information. It's just a gadget. The fact of the matter is we have to now understand the technology in order for it to uh, help us understand how we need to write. And chatbots are a perfect example. And this is one of the reasons I'm specifically interested in chatbots. Not because I think that chatbots are the most wonderful thing to hit the world, but because for me, a, the chatbot um, is an example. It is, it is one, of the, one of the best examples we have now of how we're going to have to change our thinking about writing because we're so accustomed to writing in a linear fashion. And when we start writing for machines, and we're already, some people are already doing it, but we're going to have to do it more and more and more as information specialists. We're going to have to understand that we cannot, we can no longer think in a linear fashion, and we can no longer write in a linear fashion. We have to be multidimensional. And a chatbot gives us an opportunity to practice that, which is why I used that exercise um, with my students. So I think it's really important what you said is that we need to be multidisciplinary and not live. We talk in industry about silos uh, of information, but the same in the teaching arena. We shouldn't be living in silos. We should be partnering with other departments so that we can help students become more interdisciplinary. I'm on that soapbox with you, so absolutely. Yeah. Or wine box, yeah. we can call it. Okay. Yeah. I, I can say I, I love that. Uh, that that uh, su sums it up really quite nicely. Um, as as we as we start to wrap up, are there any other uh, any resources? I know you mentioned you know the article earlier, but are there any resources or articles or things you? would suggest to our listeners? Um, in sp you mean specifically about AI or about chatbots? Or any, or in, in general, about wine, about, you know, anything you think people might enjoy? Oh, okay. So I knew you were going to ask me a question about if there was a resource. Okay. So 
Um, the resource that I'm going to give you has absolutely nothing to do with uh, artificial intelligence or chatbots or education for that matter. There is an element of wine in it though. <laughs> um, so, so when I was trying to think about, you know, what is an important read that I have? And this is going to sound really, really cheesy, okay? But I would have to just, if I'm completely honest, one of the most important uh, books that I've read in the last 15 years was that book by Liz Gilbert, Eat, Pray, Love. Mm. And yeah, okay. So I, because it resonated so much with me, and I think it resonated uh, so much with a lot of women. And actually this does have a lot, it does have a lot to do with where I am today, not only in my personal life, because you know, her, the book is really about her personal life and her search for herself, but it really has a lot to do with where I am uh, professionally as well. Um, because you know, that book was really, and I just really strongly recommend any woman who hasn't read it to read it. When we were talking earlier about, you know, women and technology, and I think it's about women feeling empowered, right? And I think that this book is really, if I could bring it down to one word, it's about empowerment. Um, and I think that obviously, you know, as American women, we have a lot of advantages today and we have a lot of opportunities but when we look back in history, it hasn't really been that long that we've had those. And when we look around the world, there's still a lot of women in the world who don't have that empowerment, right? And so for me, this was um, a book that spoke to me not just about kind of a search for self and a search for spirituality and of course in the book you know if you've read it you remember that she had a wildly wonderful time uh in italy drinking wonderful wines and eating lots of pasta <laughs> so <laughs> so if we can bring that back to, to the wine a little bit yeah there there is a wine connection there um, but really, honestly, I read that book um, before I moved to Europe. Uh, I spent my whole life living in the U.S., and honestly, I had traveled very little. Strangely enough, I had been to the Middle East, but I had never been to Europe. And it had a great impact on me um, in making some decisions about my life. And me moving outside of the U.S. was me moving outside of my comfort zone, and me moving to Europe was me taking a risk. And that risk pervaded every part of my life, including my career. So here I am working on chatbots and studying as much as I can about artificial intelligence. And I'm linking it back to Liz Gilbert. It sounds really cheap. <laughs> no, I was just going to no. say, you've had so many great messages on like thinking mm -hmm. about your pathway not being a single straight path. And your chatbots have a myriad map like your career and life. And I think that's a really nice tie back into figuring out, you're right, exploring who you are, no matter where you are, and taking a risk sometimes. It's really important to do that. So mm -hmm. thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, thank, thanks again for uh, for joining us tonight. And one final question. If people want to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to do that? 
I'm probably most active on LinkedIn. Um, I'm, you know, that's the one place that besides my email that I'm checking every day. And actually I do have my email published. If you connect with me, my email is actually published on LinkedIn. My person, I think it's my personal email. Um, I have several professional emails and they all go get redirected to my personal email. So I think that that's what's published. Um, I do have, um, I, I used to be a magazine publisher and a book publisher. Yeah, I'm like the chatbots. My life has taken me. <laughs> I love it. Hi, Laura. That was beautiful. I never thought of myself as like the chatbots. You're, you're like right. the human chatbot. It's amazing. Yeah. So I used to, um, so I have, I do have a, a publishing site um, that's all about self-publishing. It's, that's pretty popular and it's uh, pub.ink.ink, P-U-B.ink. Um, that's my, um, my self-publishing site. Uh, I do have the business sites, but you know, there's not a whole lot interesting to see there. It's really best to get in touch with me on LinkedIn and on Twitter. I have root 11 eBooks. I think that's my handle where I just have tweets about self-publishing. I still kind of dabble in that just a little bit. Uh, that's another topic we might have to bring you back mm-hmm. for because I'm interested in that too. Okay, yeah. so we'll include all the links to find Tony and the article she's mentioned, the books she's mentioned, the wine, of course. And if you want to continue the conversation, we'll be sure to have um, her information there as well. If you have a question for us or you want someone else to come on the show or you have a suggestion of who we should chat to, feel free to email us at invinofabulum at gmail.com. And we always love some love on Apple Podcasts. So you can uh, hit a like, hit a star, give us a rating, and let us know uh, what you like about the women that are whining, specifically with Invinofabulum. In wine, there is a story. Until next time. Bye, y'all. Thank you.